Good evening and uh, a very warm welcome to our evening service. It's great that we've been able to, uh, to gather together as God's people uh, to worship him. Uh, we're continuing our series uh, in the evenings, journeying through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. So we're in 2 Corinthians and uh, Neil will be uh, preaching on that, the joy and the pain of Christian ministry. So that's uh, Neil a little bit later. But before we start, before I hand over to Rob, uh, let's just take a moment to still our hearts after the busyness uh, of today, the distractions uh, that lie ahead of us. uh, And let's just be mindful of offering this time up to God uh, as our worship this evening. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that in and through the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, that we have been brought into a living relationship with you. Thank you that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit and that we are now your children. And Father, I do pray that uh, the truth of what you have done for us in and through the Lord Jesus would settle deeply on our hearts this evening, stir our hearts as we sing songs of praise to you, as we come to a time of prayer, As we listen to your word read and preached, might you stir our hearts, warm them afresh and fan into flame the love that we have for you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So let us pray. So from our passage in 2 Corinthians 1.20 tonight, we read the wonderful assurance God's promises are yes in Christ. Through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. We praise you, God, that through your Son we are offered life and we are offered family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray now for our family near and wide. And for all those known to us who are suffering, please comfort them and heal their bodies and minds. We raise before you Neil and Liz, Liz's forthcoming trip to India. We ask that it would be a blessing to both them and to David and Binny. And we pray, Lord, that you'd allow them to get their visas in good time to travel. We pray for our local churches, for their work in supporting the many Ukrainian refugees, and for the food bank in Thames supporting so many in this time of need. We thank you for the missionary partners that you sent from LCBC to the harvest fields and distant lands. Would you continue to bless their work, encourage their hearts, and keep firm their resolve to serve you, especially when things are hard? And we pray for the upcoming trip to Espatini and the team going out. Please use the team's presence as an encouragement to those on the ground planting churches and building community. We also pray for the Hope and Glory Choir, beginning their tour of this country at the end of this week. And please would you use their testimonies as they pray as a powerful witness to your goodness and glory. And we thank you for the work of Open Doors in supporting and highlighting persecuted Christians throughout the world. And we pray now for Pakistan, which is number eight on the Open Doors watch list. And they ask for these prayers, that the nation's leaders would have a wise response to the additional challenges caused by the floods for restoration and healing for the many girls and women who've been abducted abducted, and comfort for believers who are currently imprisoned and finally for help for the church to shine as a light in the darkness. 
In 2 Corinthians 1.22 we read, God anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We thank you for the promises in scripture of our salvation, the sealing of our lives by your spirit, and the glorious truth that our names have been written into the book of life. We long for those who do not know you, that in your grace and mercy, that you would move them from death to life. We thank you for the group of volunteers that have come forward to be part of the core evangelism group, and we pray that you would go ahead of them and be readying hearts to hear the good news that people would respond in repentance and faith to your glory. And we thank you for the harvest service next week, and we pray that as a church family, we would extend invitations to our friends and neighbours to come to that service and that they would indeed come. Come and know you. So be at work in our hearts, we pray. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 2.10, we read, Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Lord, help us to be a forgiving church, a forgiving people. We bring before you those relationships which are a challenge for us, the people in our ministries that we struggle to get along with, where we find it hard to be generous and gracious. We pray that by your spirit you would give us the joy that we need in being your children to have a heart of forgiveness. We ask that there would not be any building resentment in our hearts against anyone. So help us to keep short accounts with one another and where disagreement arises, help us to see the best in others, to see them through your eyes. Would you please help us to pull up any roots of bitterness or anger in our hearts and replace it with your tenderness and kindness? Father, where we do need to rebuke one another, help us to do that in love. Help us at all times and in our actions, our writings and our speech to reveal the tenderness of your love, a love that brings forth repentance and which does not hide the truth. Grant us wisdom that we might do that well. We pray for our church members meeting on Thursday. Father, help us hear well what you're saying and give us all wisdom to discern your will and the joy and courage to follow where we, where you lead. So as we come to your word this evening, Lord, we ask for you to be with Sarah as she reads and Neil as he preaches. Speak to us afresh, we pray, to the glory of God. Amen. So the reading this evening's from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. If you've got one of the church Bibles, it's page 1159. This is starting with Paul's change of travel plans. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first, so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? 
But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put us put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Thanks very much, Sarah. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we do thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that it contains all that we need for our salvation and for godly living. And so we do pray now as we study it together that we would understand more of your grace that you would fill us with more of your joy and equip us to live lives that are more pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this month, only students will be starting their training at Bible colleges uh, throughout the country, seeking to be equipped uh, for Christian ministry. Others will be starting out in ministry, uh, no doubt um, full of excitement, Uh, but also trepidation at what awaits them. Because Christian ministry can be both joyful, uh, but also painful. And that's because the church throws together a a bunch of very diverse people who are all still under the influence of sin, whether they are young in their faith or mature in their faith. And every end, there will be conflict in the church, and the devil will try his utmost to, to cause that. It's not just church leaders or those in full-time ministry who will experience it. I'm sure many of you will uh, involved in ministry will have experienced um, 
the joy and challenges of ministry from time to time. When Ananias um, was told by Jesus to go and lay his hands on Saul after that Damascus road conversion, he said to him, I will show him, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. We heard about some of that suffering last week, didn't we? It wasn't just a physical hardship and persecution, but suffering at the hands of fellow believers and the pressure of his concern for, for all the churches. It's interesting that 2 Corinthians starts with praise to God, that he is the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Maybe that is to prepare us for, for what comes next, which is a description of the joy and pain of Christian ministry. Paul wasn't immune from the pain of Christian ministry, but he does set us an example of how to respond with, with grace and forgiveness when we feel wronged. And he sets us an example of a love for God's people that overcomes any sense of grievance. Well, last week I mentioned some of the, the context for this letter. I won't go over all of that again, but I will just highlight some of the, the key events so we can understand what is going on in this passage. Just to remind you where the places are on the map. Uh, this is uh, Corinth here. Um, other places that we will talk about are Ephesus over here, Troas, and uh, this area of Macedonia up here, Philippi and Thessalonica, and places like that. Uh, time-wise... In um, AD 50, Paul came to Corinth for the first time. He stayed 18 months, and Silas and Timothy joined him there. Then continues his travels um, and ends up eventually at Ephesus. And around AD 54, Paul receives a letter from Corinth reporting problems uh, in the church and asking for his advice. Uh, So Paul sends Timothy to Corinth, um, but Timothy returns with, with worrying news about the state of the church. And around AD 55, Paul writes the first letter to the Corinthians and returns to Corinth in person. And during that visit, the so-called uh, painful visit, he became the subject of a personal attack by a, a certain individual. Uh, was disappointed that he received no support from the, the congregation. That caused him to change his travel plans, and instead of returning to Corinth after a, a visit to Macedonia, he instead went back to Ephesus. And once back there, he wrote what is known as the severe letter, which is uh, now lost. But from other references to it, we uh, understand that in that letter, he challenged the, the church to take action against the individual concerned. In AD 56, Paul visits uh, Troas and Macedonia, where Titus um, meets him with the news that the Corinthians have punished the person um, who had caused Paul such hurt, and they wanted to restore their relationship with him. Uh, So in response to that good news, Paul wrote the letter we know as 2 Corinthians, or at least the first nine chapters, before visiting Corinth for the third time in AD 57. And that's where he stays three months and writes his letter to the Romans. There's a brief history. Hopefully that'll help you as we look at some of the events um, tonight and in coming weeks. But let's have a look at the, the passage um, specifically then. Because having started the letter with praise to God as the God of all comfort, Paul goes on to share honestly with the Christians 
in Corinth. And he shares three things about um, Christian ministry. The conduct of Christian ministry, the goal of Christian ministry, and the challenge of Christian ministry. Let's start with the, the first of those. And have a look at verse 12, the start of our passage here. It says, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationships with you with integrity. The footnote there says some manuscripts say holiness and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. So Paul is relying on his conscience which begs the question what is out the role of our consciences in Christian living. Now in his letter to Timothy, Paul calls him to, to fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Our consciences are meant to help us make godly decisions. And the more we know God's word, the more we know what pleases him or displeases him, the more reliable our consciences will be as an indicator of the way in which we should or shouldn't behave. We've all been in the situations where we're being encouraged to do something by, by others that we don't feel comfortable about. Because our consciences are telling us that, that it's wrong. And at those times we have to be courageous to act according to our conscience if we are to honour God. But we also have to be careful not to think that our conscience is 100% reliable. Um, after all, it is impacted by sin, just to, um, as every other part of us is. As Paul wrote in the first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So we have to be careful that just because our conscience is telling us something, we don't force our view on someone else as the only right way. But in terms of his conduct towards the Christians in Corinth, Paul writes, Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationships with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. What do we understand by integrity and godly sincerity? Well, I think he's talking about honesty and trustworthiness here. And the source of that behavior, he says, is relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. What does he, what does he mean by that? Well, worldly wisdom seeks to, to flatter, to impress, to, to manipulate it seeks to, to be popular, to get what we want. The conservative leadership campaign was, was all about um, worldly wisdom, presenting oneself as strong and charismatic and clever, presenting policies that people want, using clever sound bites that can be repeated. Why? Well, to get the top job. Relying on God's grace means... We're not trying to get anything for ourselves. We're putting the needs of others before our own. And so instead of trying to be clever, we present the truth clearly and faithfully. Verse 13 says, For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. Underlying Paul's claim to have acted with integrity is that a complaint that's been leveled against him that he has been unreliable, he's been fickle. And that's because he said he was going to visit the Corinthians twice, but in the end only visited them once. 
And Paul's trying to explain why he changed his plans. He's saying it has nothing to do with being dishonest or, or unreliable. He acknowledges that that's the way the world works, that uh, people say yes, yes, and no, no, in the same breath. They say they'll do something, but then nothing happens. They're saying they're going to come to something, but then something better turns up and they, they make their excuses or just don't turn up. They're fickle. And in Christian ministry, when you're leading a, a ministry, as I'm sure uh, many of you know, it, it's frustrating when others don't share your, your commitment and your, your reliability. So you can understand where the, the Corinthians are coming from. Paul's been teaching them to be reliable, and it appears that he's being hypocritical. And so he's keen to set the record straight. And he does that by first referring to the, the faithfulness of God, who is the example for their whole ministry, and how he has kept all his promises. Look at verse 19. It says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Silas, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. God has kept every promise that he has made. For example, his promise in Genesis 3 that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That was fulfilled in Christ. His promise in Deuteronomy 18 that he would raise up a prophet like Moses was fulfilled in Christ. His promise in 2 Samuel 7 that from the offspring of David would he would raise up a king who would reign forever. That was fulfilled in Christ. His promise in Isaiah 53 that the servant would bear the sins of many was fulfilled in Christ. Paul is saying that the God we worship, the God who saved us, the God we serve, is faithful. And therefore you can trust us too. As it says in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. The conduct of Christian ministry should be that of integrity and godly sincerity. So we need to ask ourselves, is that how people describe us and the way we serve, the way we minister? If we're leading a ministry, then obviously we, we have to be reliable. People are, are depending on us. But what if we're a member of a team? How much can the leader of that ministry rely on us? Well, having made clear that he and his co-workers have conducted themselves according to his conscience with uh, integrity and sincerity, Paul goes on to explain to the Corinthians his goal for them, which is also what our goal should be in Christian ministry. And that is joy and faith. Have a look at verse 24. He writes, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Paul is saying we're not lording it over you. We're not being authoritarian in our leadership. We're trying to work with you. It's not our goal to, to make you become our subjects so you just do everything we tell you. Our goal is to help you grow in your faith in Jesus. He's your Lord and he's our Lord. We want you to enjoy your relationship with him. And that joy comes from trusting in his love and in his power. And as elders of this church, that is our goal for you and everyone in this church, that 
You grow in your joy in the Lord and in your faith in the Lord. We bring our recommendations to the members concerning the ministry and direction of of the church. It's not about trying to force through any agenda that we have, but to help people come to faith, stand firm in their faith, and grow in their faith. Paul is saying here that he, he doesn't have the power to enable them to stand firm. It's only God who can do that. But he can point them to God. As he says in verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. I may be an apostle, he's saying, but uh, just like you, I depend on God for my faith in Jesus. So to help and encourage them, Paul reminds them of what God has done. And the fact that it's the work of the, the Trinity, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's initiative of the Father, implemented by the Son, guaranteed by the Spirit. And so he says here, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He's saying that the gift of the Spirit is proof to you that you are now Christ's people. You belong to his covenant community. You are God's treasured possession. Your future salvation of the second coming of Christ is guaranteed. And therefore, continue as his faithful people. Serve him with joy in your hearts as you look forward to what is to come. Jesus gathering you to be with him forever. The spirit completing that work of transformation in you. God has kept all his promises up to now and so he can be trusted to keep his final promise. In Hebrews it says of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. If we are in Christ, then we too should experience that anointing with the oil of joy. We should be the most joyful people around. We have so much to be joyful about. I wonder, is that how people look at us? Yes, we will experience hardship in this life just like anybody else. But even in that, do we still show a deep joy and peace in our hearts? Well, it's in the context of wanting them to grow in their joy and faith. But Paul explains why he didn't return to Corinth. Verse 23 says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. What do we mean by that? Well, let's turn to our last point to, uh, to understand it, the challenge of Christian ministry. Paul's last visit had been painful for him. He's come under attack from a particular individual and instead of the church supporting him and dealing with that person, they they did nothing. And so inevitably Paul rebuked the church. What would have happened if he had come back as he was planning to do at that particular point? That would have been painful for him if he had to meet that person again and it would have been painful for the church to have had those difficult conversations again. And so Paul spares them from that, and instead Paul writes to them. And writing to someone can sometimes, not always, be a more effective way of explaining ourselves. We have time to choose our words carefully, 
not say something we will later regret, can help before we then meet with someone. Of course, the downside is the written word uh, can also be easily misunderstood. But Paul writes, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. Paul is able to rejoice, not when he gets his own way, not when he sees his pain relieved, but when he sees the Corinthian believers acting in a way that is pleasing to God. And that meant responding to his rebuke by disciplining the offender, bringing him to repentance before then restoring him. He wrote his severe letter in the hope that they would do this. And to Paul's great joy, that is exactly what they did. It wasn't an easy letter to write. Paul says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You can feel his pain, can't you? It's the, it's the hardest thing about Christian ministry. You're, you're criticized for something you said or did, and you, you know your intentions were right. You know it's for the good of that person or the church, but somebody has taken offense. It takes love to confront a difficult situation. The easiest option is to ignore it. Pretend that it doesn't really matter. God won't mind. The difference with Christian rebuke is that it is for the benefit of the person being rebuked. It's wanting to help them and restore them in their relationship with God. And it's done out of love. With other types of rebuke, um, it can simply be someone trying to justify themselves, win an argument, demonstrate to others that they were right. You might have read this week about uh, Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby who have been criticised for what appears to have been queue-jumping at the, the Queen's vigil. They claim they were there as part of their reporting on the, the situation. I think it's, it's that as public figures or, or brands, as they've, as they've been described in, in the media, they're dependent on public perception. And therefore, whether the criticism was fair or not, they're determined to do all they can to, to correct it. Paul here is not concerned about what people think about him. He's concerned for the faith of the Corinthians and the health of the church. He's been hurt, but he's not looking for their pity. He wants them to know his love for them. Yes, that's why he says, For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. How do we go about confronting someone? What is driving us? Is it that someone has annoyed us and they need to know? They need to apologize. They need to know how much pain they've caused. Or is it we love them so much that for their own good, they need to know that what they've done is displeasing to God. And if they carry on going down the route they're going, they may end up far from heaven. It may even cause division in the church. We have to examine our hearts carefully before we speak to a Christian brother or sister that it really is in love. Well, the good news in this situation is that the Corinthians have dealt with the offender. We don't know exactly what his uh, offence was. There's been a lot of speculation in commentaries about it. Um, 
Maybe it's the person accused in in 1 Corinthians um, of sleeping with his stepmother. We don't know, but it's now been dealt with and he's repented of it. And it would be easy for Paul now to think, well, I've been proved right and to gloat about that. I told you, I'm glad you finally did the right thing. Often be our natural reaction, wouldn't it? There's none of that here in Paul. He even downplays his, his own pain. He says in verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. He confirms that the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. In other words, you don't need to keep on punishing him if he has repented and seen the error of his ways. Now instead, he says in verse 7, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Once someone has repented, it is time to help them, to restore them into fellowship, not destroy them. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Uh, maybe if they were involved in ministry themselves, they may be asked to step down from that. But in the church, we shouldn't exclude someone from fellowship if they have repented and asked for forgiveness. They need our help and prayers because often in those situations, people will be so full of shame that they cannot face even coming back. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. He says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. And notice that reason he adds at the end there in verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan loves it when Christians fall out. And they're not able to forgive one another. After all, forgiveness is what the gospel is all about. So if they can't forgive one another, then it's undermining the whole gospel. As we come towards the end, let's reflect. Is there anyone who's grieved us who we've said we're forgiven, but have we really forgiven him in our hearts? We're stopping us from letting that, that bitterness go. And giving them our full forgiveness. But what comes across in Paul's letter is amidst the pain and the tears, a wonderful love for the Christians in Corinth. A concern for the one who has offended him. Because Paul has known God's forgiveness for his own terrible sins. He is able to forgive those who sin against him. And so there is a joy and a peace in him that we too can know as we seek God's glory and not our own. Paul's goal is to help his fellow believers grow in their joy in the Lord as they grow in their faith in him. Let's pray that will be ours too. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for bringing us together into this church. We thank you for each of our brothers and sisters and for what they mean to us. Thank you for the love that you have for them.
And we pray that we would have the same love for them as well. Lord, we pray that all that we do and say and in all our prayers, we would be seeking the, the joy and the faith of our fellow believers and helping to do all we can to help them grow in that. And Lord, we know there'll be times when there are difficult uh, situations where maybe we are hurt, where somebody does something to grieve us, where they maybe sin against us. Lord, help us to have the courage to to speak the truth in love. Help us to examine our motives when we do that. Help us always be thinking of the good of others and forgetting our own pride and our own pain. Lord, may you build up our church to be a church that acts with great integrity and sincerity where people can see in us a wonderful joy and grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.